This is The Brilliant Podcast, episode 46. This is uh, part of our series of conversations with Isaac Cronin, who is going to tell us, uh, it sounds like, quite a few war stories um, based in a imaginary and not-so-imaginary France in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting topic, what, what part of it was totally made up, because I was talking to a friend, I'll use his first name, he asked me to use one name only, Pierre, about how... Uh, the Situationists and DeBoer in particular really managed to maintain this kind of splendid isolation where other than going out in the streets in 68, they had their own universe, they had their own cafes, Mm -hmm. Uh, they didn't go on the news, they weren't media personalities. I mean, they became the focus of the media, but they never cultivated that. So they had this kind of imaginary world, which you could see in the early films where they talk about living in this special bohemian universe sure. that they've constructed. The, the dream is largely based right. on this concept. It, yeah, exactly. And and they made forays out into it, but they were essentially in this hidden universe mm. that they managed to maintain, um, even despite all the popularity that they got. So we're going back now. The last episode we left off with um, the rise and fall of uh, our relationship with Jimmy Carr, which was over, um, obviously, out of our control in um, April of 1972. And so the group um, contradiction had pretty much petered out and we had pretty much, Dan Hammer and I had pretty much deserted anyway for the appeal of this um, this real, what we thought, new generation of, of rebellion that was going to leave behind the um, intellectual impotence of contradiction. And of course we we're victims of the era in a lot of ways. And I was just thinking today, this kind of marks the time when, you know, even though we thought of ourselves as anti-spectators, in some ways we became more spectators than, yes. we, than and we all did. Um, and not to say that spectators in the sense of, you know, observers of our, our lives, uh, not of spectators of the spectacle, but observers of our own lives rather than makers of our lives. And we were aware of this, and so um, we were aware that we were at an existential crisis point, so we decided <clears throat> to do what uh, other generations of people have done and what, what, what we did in 1970, which is go back to Paris. And one of the reasons we did that is because the year before this, 71, okay, we had met um, a French radical uh, and his uh, partner, uh, Roger Grégoire and Linda Lanfear, and they had collaborated with Freddie Perlman uh, because Roger had been at uh, Kalamazoo and he'd met Freddie Perlman uh, because his uh, future wife had uh, been from there. And so they collaborated on a, on a text that became quite well known called the Worker Student Action Committee which was a, a really interesting, worthy of reading, first-person account of what happened um, in 68 uh, from a radical but not doctrinaire situationist point of view. Yep. So Roger invited us to come to France. He was living in a um, seventh-floor walk-up in the 13th arrondissement, which for people who don't know Paris is a pretty was a pretty ordinary worker neighborhood, no tourism there. You went to the market twice a week and got the chicken with the feathers on, brought it back and plucked it, and... Uh, 
tiny, tiny apartment. There was five or six of us there at times, and uh, the shower was a plastic tub that was suspended on pegs over the toilet <laughs> because that was it, right? And the kitchen was really tiny, but we, you know, we were young and it worked out perfectly. And then if it was really, really crowded, we would go across the street to the hotel. It was three dollars a night and stay in this kind of ordinary worker uh, traveling salesman hotel. Anyway, so. Roger um, had been totally involved in 68. He had great stories, and you can refer to this text for that. But um, he introduced us uh, very soon after to his collaborator, um, Jean-Pierre Voyer, who would play a huge role in uh, my life and in, in many ways in the post-situationist world. So in this period, um, the, the SI had just really... Um, decided to dissolve itself. The board written um, his um, veritable citizen, uh, real break in the SI. Uh, that was kind of required reading. And at that time, there were literally, I was going to say thousands, but hundreds of what we were called prositu, meaning situationist followers, all f um, battling for the title of who was the least prositu. And <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and no one wanted to be just a an observer or spectator. They all wanted to come up with an idea of how to uh, criticize what happened in the SI. But but De Boer made that very difficult in a way because he didn't leave a theoretical opening. He said that the epic alone created the spectators, the the, the proceed to that there was nothing in the ideas of the situationists that was responsible for this um, theoretical vacuum. Uh, for the failure of the movement to achieve its goals, for uh, a, a, an exit point and a new way out of the situation. He literally disowned all of that. Hmm. And which, I mean, I, if you look at what he wrote, he said, you know, basically it was the epic, you know, because they're, spect they're spectators or, you know, passive consumers of everything. Why not there be, why not, why couldn't there be passive consumers of the situationist movement? Sure. Uh, especially since, you know, it wasn't obvious what to, what to do next because, you know, Things had gone back to semi-normal, and I mean, it, it wasn't completely normal, of course. But so uh, you know, we were we were young and naive, and we hadn't really realized that the world had changed. Uh, we didn't understand that the system had been deeply threatened and had taken very seriously um, the possibility that if they didn't make profound changes in the way. Um, the world was run in the way um, the way products were developed and the way ideologies were I mean obviously we can debate how much of this was consciously sure. done and how much of it was just you know the market evolving <coughs> to survive but I mean one thing that I think is important is to, is to talk about the documents of the reevaluation that were happening from the radical press like it's no sh surprise that society of the spectacle begat mirror of production begat McLuhan, mm -hmm. all in that very short period of time, right, right. and all, and also that period of time is when, you know, and of course I I didn't live before, so I don't exactly know this, but I know that television and the role that television mm -hmm. took in regular folks' daily life just that was the period where it just changed. took off. Yeah, yeah, and of course, it, you know, it took off, and there was these the the artificial constraint of having four or five channels. Uh, you know, a few radio stations, all the media choices were, were really, really narrow. And, you know, and, and second of all, you couldn't make that much money doing that because you just, you know, you knew you were leaving people out. You knew some people weren't, you know, involved in this consumer process. I do like um, 
uh, Adam Curtis's documentary, Century of the Self, mm -hmm. because what I was thinking about was that, you know, first of all, the, the hippies and the leftists, uh, the politicos and, and, the, and the hippies, which, you know, encompassed in various um, mutations pretty much all of the baby boom youth generation who were oppositional, both of them were really ascetic. Like, we, we lived on nothing. We didn't buy anything uh, relatively, right? I mean, we bought, you know, the kind of essentials. You know, we weren't into clothing. Um, we, we bought a few records. We bought a few books. But, I mean, we, you know, the, the world could not go on um, in the expansion plans it had with people like this right. um, being the, the lead force. We, we just didn't buy enough. Right. And we didn't spend enough, and we didn't care about working. Like none of us, literally, thought we should have a career because the revolution was going to end capitalism, and that would be our retirement plan. I mean, we literally thought that. I mean, you know, this wasn't like a widely shared idea, but it was shared among enough people that we weren't alone in that concept. So people had uh, the baby boom generation had to be taught to consume. Mm -hmm. They had to learn how these behaviors. They weren't natural because. Um, I mean, of course, there was the, you know, the suburban um, lifestyle, and our parents were, were pretty good consumers. But we had gone through such a radical break with that, that we, that whole generation had to be retaught in a way on a different model than our parents. Uh, they had to, you know, the baby boom generation had to be, you know, schooled in this. And so I, th I like... Um, Adam Curtis's idea about, you know, creating this, this um, endlessly needy self. And I, I remember right at that time, um, I would encounter people who I thought were relatively intelligent, uh, attractive, interesting, and then they would say, yeah, you know, um, I really like Est, or I really like Scientology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those were ways that people learned that the self was good, that desire was important, that... You know, the individual ego and, and satisfying that was really a noble pursuit. And For, the, for those who haven't uh, uh, seen the show, we're mostly talking about episode two of The Century of the Self, where uh, Adam Curtis focuses on the work of Freud, but Freud by, by way of Reich. And sort of the, the central conceit of the episode is that Reich really helped the capitalists figure some things out. And one of the things, of course, that, that you learn from seeing this and also from just remembering the period is that our parents were too obedient. They were too passive. They were too accepting. It, 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 there was a kind of dead end with them. You, you know, they, they would consume, but they weren't contributing enough in feedback in the pro at least my parents. They weren't con there was no, the critical element was helpful in fashion, as we've seen now with the whole, you know, the universe we're living in now. It's all about, you know, individuals creating them, themselves as a commodity more than, you know, just buying products. But, you know, our parents were not a good model for that, you know, because they were they were limited, right? They, they weren't going to help contribute to new, they new products and new ideas. Too. Yeah, they fought World War II, and this was their reward, yeah. right? So I think I think it's important. So, so getting back to France... Um, so you've got um, you've got a lot of people um, talking about um, how whether the society is a society of situationism or whether you know um, these various ideologies um, need to be modified. And but you know uh, there was really very little of a, of a wholesale radical. <laughs> Reexamination of basic concepts like the spectacle. 
So Jean-Pierre comes along um, after writing a very um, almost humorous book, which is an encyclopedia of the Situationist, where he, he published a book called International Situationist, where he had, this is kind of in, a, in his more worshipping stage, but it lasted like six months. He publishes a book where he has the names and, and um, reasons for exclusion of all the Situationists, and he has a very hilarious, very long list of, of people insulted by the Situationists. It's like an index of everyone who's insulted. Um, but Jean-Pierre is a restless spirit, and uh, to give you an idea of the difference between um, him and Debor, who Debor actually thought of Jean-Pierre as his successor. He was literally grooming him for this. Um, this was a guy who, in an earlier stage, had met Jean-Paul Sartre and had shown his understanding of existentialism and was actually, uh, according to Roger, being considered to be Jean uh, Sartre's personal secretary. Mm-hmm. So extremely bright guy. Even in, in, in France, where there's so many precocious, bright philosophers, he stood out uh, you know, on, on another level. Um, anyway, so Pierre... Um, is in uh, Guy Debord's apartment. He said it was 71 or 72. He's my age, so he would have been 23 or 24. Jean-Pierre, 10 years older, and Debord older than that, a few years. And he uh, the, he walks in, and they're having a discussion, Jean-Pierre and Guy Debord, about whether the unconscious exists. And uh, Debord says, well, of course it does, because you know he's, his, his schooling is surrealism, and the unconscious is a powerful force. We can tap it, but we can never truly dominate it. Um, and Jean-Pierre says, bullshit. Uh, you know, what, what's really going on here is that this is a limit forced upon us by uh, traditional constraint, and it, it's not the case. Um, and he later, very soon after that, writes, really addressing this issue in his own way, he writes a text um, which is available in... Um, the book, It's Crazy How uh, how Many Things Don't Exist, published by Little Black Cart, and also separately in a translation from Ken Nab. He, he, he says, character, meaning neurosis, is the absence of theory. And so he, he takes a completely different tact. And, and Pierre said at that moment, he could see that he, he remembers looking back, maybe not at that time, but looking back, he could see the difference between them because although De Boer was charming and historical, he really was in a way as radical as he was accepting um, the given, and Jean-Pierre was constantly challenging it, and and, uh, this gentleman ended up working with Jean-Pierre for 10 years. So Jean-Pierre publishes a book right around that point called The Science of Publicity, which unfortunately has been translated poorly but never published in Mm. English. So that's his first attempt to to go beyond the spectacle while using it. So he's not ready to break with the concept of the spectacle yet. But he talks about, for the first time, the idea that the reason that so many people have spent so much time willingly going along with the market and, and commodities is because in the commodity, there is a community that's false and untrue, but there's a real community. There's a general, universal source of wealth, which hidden is communication. So there's a dialectical meaning to this, whereas if you look at Society of the Spectacle, you only see misery, you see you, you see alienation, you don't see humanity in the spectacle, you see inhumanity, Which and then eventually, if we revolt, in the act of revolt, we'll discover that humanity. Sure. But Jean-Pierre is seeing something different for the first time, still keeping the concept of the spectacle around. Is he still using terms like dialectics at this point? 
Is it, you mean in this period? Is he using that term? He wouldn't use that term. Um, and so, I mean, th- so obviously this is a, a traditional Hegelian approach applied in, to it, you know, to the modern context. Um, so, we are highly influenced by um, the text Reich, um, how to use, and we um, decide that we're going to translate that in our own American way into an advertisement for ourselves. So, in fact, we are incorporating this new uh, century of the self uh, approach. Uh, But we try and do it in a way which is both self-deprecating and humorous. So... Um, this is before personal ads existed. This is before Craigslist. The only personal ads or ads like that were sex ads in the Berkeley Barber and other places, but there weren't people looking for companionship publicly. That just that hadn't happened yet. So, you know, you went to these things like Est um, or Scientology to meet people as much as anything else, but mm-hmm. you weren't freelancing. So we decided to freelance. So we came up with this idea of doing a poster um, at, in, in between 72 and 73, well, we went back to Paris again, uh, and the poster was called, We're Tired of Playing With Ourselves. So this is a poster where we put our photos out. Uh, before that, uh, I can't remember anything that we did that had our pictures on it. Mm. It was all this kind of omniscient narrator showing up. You know, it, was, it wasn't personal in that way, right? It was always the world, you know, like the situation of stance, um, is this kind of glacial, icy voice, uh, like in the, the film Society of the right. Spectacle, the omniscient narrator, the all-knowing genius um, theorist. <clears throat> so we were thinking, okay, well, what if we show some vulnerability, which was obviously, we hadn't really been involved actively in these um, these groups, including the Esalen Encounter groups and Ego Psychology and all kinds of things were going on, seminars. This had all just blossomed mm-hmm. at this point. So we, we knew about it, but, you know, we we thought that was, you know, kind of revolutionary bourgeois or something. So we, we tried to concoct our own version of this on our own terms, which I think was pretty original in a way. I mean, you know, it was like completely out of nowhere as far as most people were concerned, right? Um, but it was thanks to this bridge created by Jean-Pierre in that text that, that you know, gave us the, the French version allowed us to do the American version. Uh, so we, we produced this pamphlet, uh, this poster. Um, it was pretty large, 17 by 22. There was our pictures, uh, slightly in outline, but, but you could still recognize us. And basically there was a critique of our complacent yuppie life before there was yuppies. We basically said, you know, we're like you, we're, we're cynical, we read uh, Dasha Hamet, we make fun of the San Francisco Chronicle, we go to the nice restaurants, and, you know... Um, before there was even like that kind of Epicurean movement or food consciousness. It was just San Francisco dining, whatever. We lived in San Francisco. You know, and we didn't have much money, uh, you know, but we, you know, didn't take much money. So we were living this kind of, you know, yuppie life, I would say. Uh, There have been been recurrences of this type of bohemian uh, thing, basically, in every subcultural youth movement ever, ever since. Right. Yeah, exactly. And really, you were you were emulating the beats. Yeah, we were, and but we were obviously introducing a much what we thought more a more radical and mm-hmm. and and coherent critique of society. So we basically said the society keeps us from meeting. Uh, it's their goal, which is true, of course. You know, isolation. We see that now with the automobile, the with everything, internet. right? With you know, with the Facebook. The whole thing, right? But we were saying that was already happening to us. We didn't like it. We wanted to reach out to people. 
and we proposed that people get in touch with us. And back then, it was all done through a PO box, right? We didn't give our phone numbers. We didn't, you know, we didn't have cell phones. We weren't going to have people. We, it never even occurred to us to do any of that stuff. We were restricted to, you know, written communication, uh, which is kind of interesting because it takes a lot of work, and you have to, you know. You have to consider things, you know, rush out and do things. You know, it's like a real project, right? It has to matter to you. You can't just blurt things out. And this was far from blurting out, this, this anyway. So, um, so we put up, you know, and with wheat paste, the standard stuff, you know, and back then we weren't competing with much, you know, on the walls, right? It wasn't so crowded, right? right? right. But in, in, in the middle of, like, on Telegraph Avenue, right on the windows of buildings, you know, storefronts, we didn't really care if they found us, right? Right on the glass. Uh-huh. You know, we put up, you know, 300 of these things. And uh, so we went, you know, a week later to the P.O. box, and we couldn't even open it. There were so many letters in it. There was, like... Eventually, it was like five or six hundred letters wow. from three hundred posters, That's right? Amazing. I mean, it's like the response is supposed to be one in a hundred. We got two to one, right? Which <laughs> yeah, yeah. is like a mathematically impossible. And there was every kind of um, approach or proposal from you know, let's have a sex party to I'm I'm insane. Can we talk? To you want to start a business? To I mean, it was just you know. And one of the biggest regrets of my life is that I moved so many times and I was so cavalier. I didn't, I didn't keep, keep the letters. Yeah. No, I mean I think they would still be valuable in a way. Mm-hmm. And so we attracted the t- attention of one of the founders of the Yippie Party. Uh, there was Abby Hoffman. There was Stu Albert, who kind of disappeared after running for mayor of Berkeley. And then there was a guy called Paul Krasner who survived. And he has a publication that was very popular then called The Realist. Uh, And he was part of the Rolling Stone crowd, but he was famous because he uh, put a picture of Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, naked, fucking Kennedy's neck wound on the cover of his publication. Whoa! That is so scatological at that time. I mean, that was like really, you know, saying Johnson basically had something to do with it or, you know, whatever. He was just like a really radical guy. And completely independent, and he published this little, it was a monthly, I mean, it had a pretty big circulation. It was like on the newsstands, publication, on newsprint, and he offered us an entire issue of The Realist. Oh, he said, wow. take over, this is brilliant, I'm in shock. Um, I met him at a, at a nitrous oxide party, uh, my, my ex-girlfriend had work, was working at Rolling Stone, and I met him at a nitrous oxide party. And, I and told, Rolling Stone was here until Yeah, Rolling Stone was here until, until 77 80s? or something. Okay. Then moved, then moved to New York. Yeah, so that was why that makes sense. Yeah. And they had these nitrous oxide parties with tanks, because back then it was an industrial gas. Oh, it was right. $5 for a thousand <laughs> hits or something. And, and uh, But it was new then. And so anyway, I told him, uh, I can't remember if I was under the influence, but I told him this story, and he just said, you know, I'm, you know, take over. And being such snots, we didn't, of course. Like, we were just too cool for that. But, yeah. and I really regret that because I think it was, we were onto something. I mean, it's not like we could have made a career of it, but there was something that was going on there because we had tapped a vein and we had kind of, you know, exposed, uh, you know, we were criticizing implicitly all of this kind of early stage um, egoism um, is okay stuff that was going on, you know, to make the market grow. I mean, we were, you know, there was a critical edge to that. Anyway, so next year we went back to France again, and uh, we uh, had the posters with us, and we met Jean-Pierre on the street. Actually, we went to his apartment. 
uh, tiny little place in the Latin Quarter, tiny, at it Garrett. He was paying like $50 a month or something, literally. And uh, showed him the poster, and he just got so excited. He started screaming and yelling. And we went down to the street, and he was so excited. He just was yelling, I love the Americans. And he jumped from car to car, landing on the ceiling of the cars, like smashing in. Because cars, you know, you can actually kind of crush the roof if you land on the top, right? Yelling this thing. He was just like in ecstasy. He was really, like, he just so much liked this poster. And what do, you, what do you think the cultural gap represented to him? Um, I think he thought that we were like essential. I mean, in other words, he could never have done that. I mean, he was really um, as radical as he was. It was all about getting the language right. You know, it wasn't about finding the means of experimenting with the means of communication. But, I mean, they kept saying to us, you know, we, we're, we're a team, you know, they, they were kind of in some ways diminishing our intellectual capacity, but right. right? But they were saying, like, you guys know how to communicate what we know how to write, you know. Mm-hmm. That was really, but that made him happy that, you know, he'd found collaborators because, I mean, he, it's not like he figured he could do it all, but he wasn't looking for, I mean, it was all in his head pretty much, right? He just kept going for years. Yeah. One of those guys who's kind of got it all just, there, it's just a matter of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we were kind of ideal collaborators for him. And um, many years later, let's see how many, um, 26 years later, on my 50th birthday, this is just to give you an idea of his character continuing in the same vein, a true ebullient spirit, unlike the very cool, you know, radical situationist image that everyone thinks of, right? Or, or Sartre or, you know, these intellectuals, because he really wasn't an intellectual, as we talked about earlier. Uh, I was there uh, on my 50th birthday because I wanted to be in Paris, just celebrate. And he took us to, my ex-wife and I, to a restaurant that had one of the largest cellars in France. And he was quite a wine expert. Um, he was, you know really knowledgeable and encyclopedist so he knew wine encyclopedically he, he took us to dinner there and he started ordering and you know the wine got older and older eventually it was like 60 years old the, the cognac was 60 years old and he was working in a modest job actually in his own software company and the you know and he was making i don't know five grand a month or something you know it was just average amount right i mean he was for some of the time, it was probably quite good. It was good, but he, you know, he owned the company and he sure. built it up. And, and and the bill was one month, and the bill came, and he just laughed, and it was one month's salary, and he paid it. You know, and I was just like crying, basically. I was yeah. just so moved by that. I mean, I didn't expect it anything like that. You know, it was just like, oh, well, you know, easy come, easy go. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, yeah, right, this guy really understands the gift. You know, he really does. He's like living the, the you know, he really just mm-hmm. didn't, didn't even occur to him not to do that. Um. Anyway, so at this point, um, the extended social network that we had going back, so I'm coming back to America then. So we, we, we left France. I mean, obviously, it's hard to beat this kind of yeah. experience in the streets of Paris, right? It felt like there was like the shadows. We were still in the game, yes. right? We were yep. still, you know, in our tiny way, we were still, you know, contributing to something really interesting and an international collaboration. So even if there wasn't the... SI, which had had at one point five or six different national sections, we had this Frank Berkeley Paris axis. That was basically how we saw it, right? And that was and that was an important axis mm-hmm. for many other people too, including Ken Nab. He went back and forth on the same. There were many other people who saw that connection and used it. Um, and, it and it makes sense, and it's alive today. I mean, Berkeley is like the most French place out, you know, in the United States, really, in a lot of different ways. You mm-hmm. know, even though people make fun of it, uh, but it. 
contributed to the American food movement. There was a lot of we have, stuff. We have a gourmet ghetto here. Yeah, that's right. But also there was, yeah, it's true. We have a gourmet ghetto. Or we did. It's kind of. Um, it's also a walking town, which yeah, is unusual right. in the U.S. That's right. That's right. Perfectly true. Okay, so um, we had this extended milieu. There was a, you know, there was people who'd been involved in Point Blank. There was people who'd been involved in Contradiction, and we were all still hanging out. But, um, you know, the um, so this is 70, 73, 74. Um, we were the society. If you if you look at what happened in those years. Um, there's a lot of contradictory swirling tendencies and more in a political sense. I was thinking about this today, actually, kind of for the first time. The United States had basically lost the war in Vietnam. Um, so that, 74 was? Uh, 75 was the end, but 73 was the end of the trip. So the, the, the streets were littered just as they are now, only more so, with, with, with heroin-addicted veterans, with, uh, you know, maimed maimed guys. I mean, the... the, the but the failure in our was experiment... Visible. In Asia. Was, was visible. Right. It was highly visible. And so despite the fact that the U.S. denied that they lost the war to a superior uh, military strategy and army and approach, uh, it was apparent that the war had been lost. I mean, that denial goes on to this day, but, yeah. he, but clearly General Jiap beat uh, General Westmoreland mm-hmm. at his own game, no matter what anybody says. Um, and so there was this um, dark cloud, this... Um, the sadness hanging over uh, America. At the same time, we were beginning to realize that we'd lost our war. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, the baby boom generation uh, who didn't share those that view that a radical social, uh, profound social change was necessary were thinking they'd done great because they had helped end the war. And so they were thinking, okay, as a whole generation, we've done our job. You know, we can do whatever we want. We can enter the we can enter the the workplace. We can enter the market. We can you know. So there so there were these kind of I mean three different tendencies um, going on. Um, and at the same time, I was looking up some events that happened then. So we had kind of the really sad uh, kind of um, period to the whole to the whole thing was what we're left with is Patty Hearst being kidnapped right. and by the SL. And so we're thinking, oh my God, it's like, how, how do we even say anything about this? This is just so ridiculous. And it, and it gave a lot of weight to the idea that, you know, that the, uh, everything was going to become a spectacle because you had this huge media circus uh, over no ideas at all, really, completely inconsequential. And so this was just kind of a kick in the face to us, really, at that point. I mean, we realized, uh, you know. And so how that, what that translated into was, you know, a lot of hand-wringing, uh, um, uh, some pro two pamphlet writing uh, on our part, um, trying to figure out what went wrong. There was the introduction uh, a year or two later from Paris of finally a critique of the situation that's been used being misogynist, although that word wasn't really used. And I, you know, I don't think those critiques actually that I've even seen them. I've really? heard of them. But uh, arms and the woman was one that was translated by Ken uh, into English, obviously from so did French. He, did he? Print it in public secrets? Yeah, okay. he did. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'd have to go back and look at them. I mean, I think, of course, they were right because, I mean, if we want to go off on this subject for a while, uh, at least as in post-mortem here, which we're in, there really wasn't, there was very little, I mean, there was there was a relationships, there was attempts to get through masculine roles, 
um, because you know I personally had grown up you know knowing a lot of feminists who had a lot of great things to say and I paid attention to it obviously because I realized this was a problem a profound historical problem but but the only pictures of women in the SI period were girlfriends yeah, and, and the other thing that was really disturbing to me recently when I watched part of Society of the Spectacle was that the only pictures of women in in True. theory were naked yeah. or in bikinis. Yeah. And apparently, you know, recently there was a screening of this um, film at a... Uh, by the time this airs, probably it'll be over, but there's a show called... Uh, on the Bay Area situation is at a gallery in Oakland, Pro Arts Gallery, um, running to the 28th of April, um, and there was a screening recently of Ken's, of Ken's uh, translation. translation of Society of the Spectacle. And that was one of the points that came up, is that women were... I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's like they're... You know, in the earlier films, there were pictures of Michelle Bernstein, who was um, a collaborator, wrote some interesting novels, and was actively involved uh, in the films. And they, But there was also, you know, naked women. In Society of the Spectacle, there's, you know, it just... There's dozens of images of women naked or in bathing suits. And everyone said, this is pointless. I mean, you know, one or two, but why would you, like, do this continually? And I realized that was the case. Um, I hadn't seen the film in a long time. And so uh, there was a lot of fighting, and there was a lot of arguing, and there was a lot of relationships breaking up over this issue. But there wasn't a lot of... uh, The French, typically, since they're the French, did write... Women wrote something. Um, but I think uh, people would ask me this over and over again, like, was this milieu different from other radical leftist milieus? And there were some women involved in SDS and in all these other groups, but obviously the ratio was pretty much typical of what you would expect. Yep. And so it took a lot more, um, uh, you know, and the French are, you know, I don't know if they're more misogynist than the Americans, uh, but... Um, you know, it's not something I think I would be, pr- I'm not proud of that legacy particularly. I don't, I don't think there was really any honest fundamental criticism or change compared to the outside world. I think mm-hmm. we pretty much uh, copied that. So um, basically, uh, when we were looking at um, what to do, we kept going back to, to the French um, so we're, we're into 75 now, and the group's pretty much disbanded. Actually, I had created a journal with one of the founders of uh, Point Blank, Chris Schutz, that came out in 1974, called Implications. And we were down to writing lengthy articles about things like what we called vanishingism. So we were saying, you know, there are people who are daily lifeists. So they're, you know, in opposition to, to De Boer, you know, and, 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 and Ken, in a way, who was the reigning uh, promoter of that. There were people who, who spent too much time. It's kind of embarrassing in a way. I mean, I guess it's like I kept, you know, using my theoretical chops or something, right? I kept, you know, working on something. But that was the kind of thing we were doing then, very sectarian, you know, tiny circulation, um, just, you know, delusional in a way by that point. Fortunately, though, the world outside continued, and there were revolts in various places. There was, um, there were revolts in Italy, there were revolts in Poland, there were revolts in South Africa, and so uh, we 
realized that we had to keep focusing on that. So we started writing commentaries and publishing things on uh, those events. So we were pulled out of ourselves. Um, and at the same time, unbeknownst to me, actually, Jean-Pierre was developing a very radical critique um, of the Situationists and of Marxism and of the economy, uh, which was published in 76. And um, obviously I got a hold of this and read it in French and it went completely over my head uh, because it was really complicated and it took 10, 15, 20 years for the world to catch up. And uh, we are publishing that shortly um, through Little Black Heart. It's called An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Misery of People, a takeoff on the Adam Smith uh, mm-hmm. book, uh, The Wealth of Nations. So you refer to this book as the enquête. Right. And bubbling around the same set of ideas is this this essay, The Economy Does Not Exist. Right. So this is, and of course this is very interesting to me because the problem still exists. Marxism is still popular. Mm-hmm. People still want to use Marx's framework both to understand society and to understand economy and to understand how we're going to win. Right. So how did this challenge that? Essentially, he's saying that um, the commodity um, is not material. Um, he's saying that w- when, he, when he says the economy doesn't exist, he means the economy exists in the minds of our rulers. There's no such thing as an economy which acts autonomously. Um, there, there is the commodity in money which dominate us, but the idea of the economy per se, which is a system um, different from the market, let's say, um, a, um, a material force um, separate from what people can control that has it, that is, in other words, people are always saying the economy is, is going to turn on us. It's, it's, a, it's a historical actor that has its own power separate from w- what we can understand. In a way, it's similar to the idea of the spectacle in the sense that um, uh, it's an abstraction. The way, the way Jean-Pierre, I think, says it most clearly is he says, okay, uh, religion exists, um, God doesn't. Um, the economy doesn't exist, um, the market does. Mm. Um, it's it, it's an absolute. So, what's useful about this? Because this basically this is the same old conversation about reification, right? And where does it, under what name do we call reification? Right. Basically, what he's saying is that you have with God, you have this abstract, unknowable power that yet um, dominates us, and that 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 no matter what we do, will be there as an, as an uh, um, irrational force to dominate our lives. Um, and that's very similar to the idea of the spectacle, which is this um, entity which has a thousand different faces and is contradictory, and yet it's all, it's all powerful. So the economy has a similar role. It, it has a thousand different faces, and it's all powerful, and it escapes the control of human beings, and in a way, always will. So um, in some mean, essential way, <clears throat> Debord's Society of the Spectacle is a re-approachment to the same topics that Marx was talking about in the first three chapters right. of Das Kapital. Right. So what's Boyer's target with the enquête? What, what he's saying is that, um, and what he's saying about the spectacle, is that there, there's a movement of, 
what 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 he what he sees as being this force, uh, and what I see agree with as being this force that's that's dominating us is that we've invested commodities. It's all about conversation. For 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 Voyer, it's all about dialogue, which is you know obviously in a way makes perfect sense, right? I mean, he calls it bavardage. You know, he calls it like conversation, like chit chat, right? But profound chit chat, and so. Um, he's saying that um, in the world, uh, f- forget about the economy. Uh, commodities are talking. Commodities are living. They're acting for mm-hmm. us. They're literally acting on our behalf, and we carry them around. We're, he calls it porter de merchandise. We literally are carrying commodities around. We are their servants, and they're speaking. And we can see this, right? I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? It's not simply advertising. It's that the that the language that we hear, what we see, what we know, is commodities talking to each other. And we're listening. Um, and so in, in the same way, he says that because we aren't speaking uh, for ourselves, the spectacle exists. So basically, he, he flips it um, on its head. Debor says, because there is this basically almost unknowable and omniscient and all-faceted spectacle, we are spectators. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Jean-Pierre is saying, because we are slaves, we're slaves, we agree, you know, everyone would agree on that, right? That there are, but what he's saying, more importantly than that the, uh, our masters are our masters, is that we are mastered by commodities. And of course, those commodities are in the service of power, but in, in a real immediate way, we are the servants of those commodities. So he's saying, because we don't speak, because we are mute, because slaves actually don't control their lives, in the void of our silence, the blah, blah, blah of the spectacle is there. And that's really simply just blah, blah, blah. It's really not... What's, I think, really exciting about that is that you then don't spend that much time figuring out the ins and outs of every specific ideology or every specific... um, commodity message or every specific intellectual trend, it's all nonsense, essentially. I mean, compared to what we really have to say that, you know, that's, it's just gibberish. So he's saying then that the, the spectacle is the result of our alienation, not the cause of it. And, and that, Mm. that really flips things on its head because all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, um, I mean, examples are in 68 when um, the crisis took place and the workers and the, and the students were in the streets. For two or three weeks, there was no media and they were rendered speechless. They had nothing to say uh, because someone, there was another dialogue taking place and they didn't, they didn't feel like if they intruded, they would be listened to and they weren't. Um, you can this ha- is also about political agency. Right. It's basically saying that... Social agency. I would prefer to use rather than political. No, that's, that's fine. Yeah, yeah okay. that's fine. Right. It, it's about social agency. Exactly. So, so um, Jean-Pierre says, yes, there, is, there are shows, there are spectacles, there are circuses, but, but those circuses are, are only there because there can't be a void. There, there simply can't be a void. And... And so we have, for example, in our own time, in our own recent time, um, a kind of surreal event where the World Trade Center was attacked. And you have this, uh, what follows is rerunning over and over and over again with 
excuse me, really no narrative or analysis that image mm-hmm. over be, just showing that yes. because there can't be nothing. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's a really liberating idea um, because I, I've never met a single person who has read The Society of the Spectacle who can actually do more than just repeat what it says. I've never met somebody who actually, I mean, there haven't been any improvements sure. on that book. There isn't like another book which like takes the society of the, spe- the spectacle further than that. And in fact, DeBoer said it was perfect. Um, and um, just returning to Jean-Pierre for a moment here, um, one of the things that was uh, told to me by my friend Pierre, which was really interesting, is that Jean-Pierre, I mean, he was funny. He would he, he wrote a letter a day for like three years criticizing uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy and sent it to him, a really insulting letter. But he also wrote a lot of letters criticizing Guy Debord and his publishing partner, Gerard Lubovici, and together they had this publishing company, Shaw Libra, in the 70s, and it was the house organ for Guy Debord, and he got to pick the books. Um, Jean-Pierre wrote interesting, not always... Um, mean criticism of many people and not a single person ever answered him, which I thought was really, really not, they, there was never a comeback. But, but internally, um, Jean-Pierre was actually very self-critical. So he started with the concept of publicity and um, he gave it up. He, you know, he went on to talk, to, he, I mean, he realized it was a partial concept and he eventually came up with the idea of communication, which I think is a very approachable and much more easily understandable concept. Um, and he, but he was constantly renewing his theoretical perspective, unlike mm-hmm. DeBoer, who was said many times, what I've done is complete, there's no reason to criticize it. So I think as a model of, of method, Jean-Pierre is clearly uh, someone I'm interested in emulating in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so um, the 70s wound down, um, and um, for me, it ended with um, an attempt to restate uh, the situationist ideas in a video that I did uh, with my ex-wife that came out in, I guess, 81, uh, Call It Sleep. And do you want to do a whole episode on that, or do you just want... You uh, we could go back over it another okay. time, yeah. Okay. But I mean, but I, I think, uh, once again, it was the American role of trying to be the ad man, trying to come up with a methodology that was different from the French to communicate right. yes. some of the French ideas. Right. And I think, you know, that's a pretty good place to end it. Excellent.